It's been a while since I've been up here. I almost forgot what I was supposed to do up here. All right, we're starting a new series, and the series is on the book of Hebrews, and I've entitled it uh, Near to the Heart of God. I perhaps should have entitled it after this morning, Abiding in Christ, but uh, it's, it's one that I need to begin by making a confession, and that is uh, I'm a coward. For 35 years, I have succeeded in dodging uh, the book of Hebrews, and uh, and and mainly because I'm afraid of it, if you want to know the truth. But I have lots of company. Um, I know of others who have also, likewise, for many years, uh, evaded the book for the very same reasons. And I'm not really that encouraged or, or threatened by those who have been bold enough to try it. Uh, there have been those that I have greatly respected who have taught through the book of Hebrews, and I have said to myself at some of those difficult places, this just doesn't make sense, just like the book. And so I didn't really get any further along in my understanding of Hebrews with their explanation than I did with the text itself. So that wasn't exactly motivating me to jump in like fools, uh, angels who, uh, uh, you know, rush in, or fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And, and then to cap it all off, I said to a good friend who had taught through Hebrews, is your series on Hebrews in print? And I don't remember whether he said yes or no, but he basically said, but I wouldn't read it anyway because I've already changed my mind. And so I'm thinking, oh, great. So here we are uh, dealing with the book of Hebrews uh, once uh, in 35 years. It's probably time, and it certainly will be a challenge to all of us. And I, I really have to say, this book more than any other is one I'm going to approach with fear and trembling. When Paul said, I come to you with fear and much trembling, I understand. This book is a heap powerful book, but it is a difficult one to understand. My approach this morning is going to be to talk about a couple of things. One, why we should study Hebrews. And then secondly, how I'm going to approach the, our study in the book of Hebrews. And really the main portion, if you want to know the truth, is the third segment, and that is, why do people avoid it? And, and I'd like to respond, not just to identify with, with their avoiding it, but I'd like to focus on some of those things and take a second look and maybe alleviate some of our fears or our misunderstandings related to Hebrews that may help us as we, as we move ahead in our study and, and then with some words of conclusion and application. So why should we study the book of Hebrews? Well, I think, I think Hebrews is a place where it is logical for us to start after what we talked about last Sunday. Last Sunday, you remember, we were challenged to think of our Lord Jesus Christ in bigger terms. That he is greater, that he is more powerful, that he is more awesome, that he is more beautiful than our minds can conceive. That if you would, in the words of J.B. Phillips, our God is too small. And there's no book, I think, better than the book of Hebrews uh, that will enhance our sense of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And the greater he is, the greater our faith should correspondingly be. And you know that the book of Hebrews is addressed to help us increase our faith. 
So it seems to me that it's a very, very good place to begin for us. You might even say it's a good place for a new beginning for us. Secondly, Hebrews connects the dots between the Old Testament and the New. Uh, You'll see that, for instance, and there's a clue just in terms of how much the Old Testament is quoted. Somebody was was saying uh, yesterday, last night, that it's frustrating to try and read through Hebrews because there's all these quotes in the midst of it, and it sort of, you know, it sort of tangles things up, sort of. Uh, But listen to what Guthrie uh, says about that. Of all the writings of the New Testament, none is more saturated with overt references to the Old Testament. The author so filled his discourse with Old Testament thoughts and passages that they permeate every chapter. Thirty-five quotations from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Thirty-four allusions work to support the development of Huber's argument. In addition, the writer offers 19 summaries of Old Testament material, and 13 times he mentions an Old Testament name or topic, often without reference to a specific context. I mean, you just, if you take this and just wring it out, it just, it just rings out with Old Testament stuff. And we need to really have a grasp of how the New Testament links to the Old and no book, I think, better than Hebrews helps us to do that. See, Hebrews exalts Christ and fixes our eyes on Him. Man, I mean, if we want to fix our eyes on Jesus, this is the place to do it. Hebrews lifts him up, shows him in all of his greatness and his beauty and his intercession for us, and says, look to him. D. Hebrews challenges us to confess our complacency and to press on to deeper waters. <laughs> That's the thing about the Hebrews that is the plus and the minus. Uh, when we were on our Alaskan cruise, uh, and you know you're going to hear about that sometimes, so I might as well say it now, but we went through these fjords, and, and one of the things that struck me is there was no beach. Now, I'm a boy that grew up on the lake, I grew up on the sound, and, and you know, you go out and you wade and whatever, there's no beach. And I thought to myself, if I fall overboard from this boat, and I can make it through the cold waters to the other side, to where the land is, which wasn't that far away, it's a cliff. You, you can't put your feet down on land. You gotta scale a cliff. And, and that's the way Hebrews is. This is not a kid's wading pool. This is deep water. And, and that's something that we, we have to, to come to terms with. But the writer to the Hebrews is saying, it's time for you to move on. You've been in shallow water too long. Get out into the deep. Well, Hebrews is deep. It challenges us to live by faith. And all of us, I think, uh, need to have that challenge constantly before us. It's an exposition of the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about something like the Gospel of John and you see the high priestly prayer of our Lord Jesus and you see references or allusions to it elsewhere in the New Testament, Nowhere, so far as I'm aware, nowhere in the New Testament do we have a fuller explanation of what the high priestly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ is like, what it looks like, and how it works. So it's it's just the perfect place for us to go when we want to think about his ministry on our behalf.
Hebrews also is one of the most powerful books in all of the New Testament. And, and to my knowledge, there are other places in Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and, and, and first, 2 Peter chapter 1, and, and a few references to the authority and the inspiration of Scripture, and I don't minimize those at all. But so far as I know, no place more consistently says to us, this is God's Word, and you dare not neglect it. This is a place where the Word of God is constantly underscored. I mean, the book begins that way. God, who has spoken through the prophets in many places in many ways, has now spoken to us by His Son. Chapter 2 says, you know, if... Indeed, this revelation has been given from our Lord to the apostles and the apostles to, to others and confirmed by miraculous signs and wonders. How dare we neglect that word? You know, and then you've got the word of God is powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword over and over again. This book is saying to us, listen to God's word. We need that message. Hebrews warns us, of the deadly dangers that are there in front of us that we need to be aware of, that we need to be cognizant of, and that we need to take uh, corrective actions to avoid. And it tells us that we definitely need to endure. Thinking about that for us as a church, many of us have been believers for a number of years, I would say, like many of those that are being addressed in this book. But the question is, how far ahead have we moved? How much progress have we made? Are we resting on our laurels? Hebrews says, if we are, we're in danger. We're in danger of drifting away, and we need to listen to that word of warning. Hebrews strives to focus our attention and our affections on Christ. That's a beautiful and a wonderful thing. It challenges us to get out of our lethargic uh, dull uh, mindset to wake up and to begin to pursue those things which are important and eternal. And last, Hebrews, as I mentioned already, Hebrews tells us how to abide in Christ. John chapter 15 is a wonderful, wonderful text. But it seems to me that Hebrews is just an expansion of that. It's just playing that out in larger terms. Uh, if you are my disciples, you will abide in my word. All of that, it's just right here in the book of Hebrews, and it's a message that we need to hear desperately. Now, how should we approach the, uh, the study? How am I going to approach this? Well, I'm not, I'm not going to go down deeper and stay down longer than ever, anybody else ever has. I, I've seen some really long series and, and I'm, I'm going to avoid that because it seems to me that what we need to be able to do is to follow in our minds the argument through the book. Now, I know that's the big problem. Is people saying, yeah, and what is that argument? But we'll never come to terms with that argument if, if we're just dealing with a verse or two verses and, and you never have the opportunity to just really play out where does this go. So the way I'm going to approach it is this. I'm going to start out with a with a sort of logical section. For example, the first section would be 1-1 through 2-18. And I'm going to start out with that section and, and talk about the argument of that section as a whole and how that, that argument develops. Then I'm going to go back to 
uh, verses 1 through 3, which lays the foundation for the whole book. And then we'll talk about uh, verses uh, 4 uh, through the end of, of uh, verse 4 in chapter 2 and and the superiority of our Lord over the angels, and then pick up uh, it, it, as it does. I'm starting to do this already. But, but it, when you look at that first part, it's talking about the exaltation of Christ. And the last part in chapter 2 is talking about the humiliation of Christ, both of which are essential to his person and his work. Then we'll talk about the, some of the details. But my plan is sort of show the big picture of that logical section, then deal with some of the smaller sections, but to keep moving at a pace where hopefully we won't lose interest and we'll, we'll follow the argument. So, why don't we study Hebrews? Okay, I've already confessed. I'm a coward. But so are you. I mean, the truth of it is, we're all, I don't know of many people who just venture in and jump in over their head in Hebrews and, and love it. There are some. But when I think about this as, as a preacher, I, I look on the internet, I look in various places, there aren't a whole lot of guys teaching in an expository way, period. Right? Out there. Chapter by chapter, book by book. It's not going on a lot. And it's really not going on in Hebrews. And the reason is that people aren't really quite sure how to do it. So I understand. But the other side of it is that people don't really, people in the pews, if I can use that for a minute, people in the pews really don't want to hear it. Hebrews is not that book where if you're saying, what what if we were to put a big marquee up in front of the church and say, this is going to be our study for the next few months. If you put the book of Hebrews... People would whiz on by, and they wouldn't even give us a look because they say, "You got to be kidding!" You know. Now, if you talk about having a happy life and blah blah blah, you know, man, then they pack the doors. This is not a topic that people are itching to hear. You'll discover as I go on that that my favorite commentary, and boy, the commentaries are frustrating in Hebrews because everybody tries to convince you of their argument, and they're all going different directions, and you just want to throw them out. But there's a guy named Guthrie. Uh, George H., not George W., George H. Guthrie, who's got the NIV application uh, commentary on Hebrews, and and he uh, mentions that when he was a student and he was working on his master's uh, thesis, he was riding on a plane and he sat next to a businessman who was a Christian, and they started talking, and he told them that he was a seminary student and so on. And, and, and then he said, well, what, what are you doing your, your study, your master's thesis? What are you writing on? And the guy, uh, uh, George says, uh, well, on the book of Hebrews. And the guy's face turns dark, and he says, oh, man, that's a book I've tried to avoid. Well, most people do. It's it's not a book that everybody's running to hear. I call Hebrews the Leviticus of the New Testament, not only because it logically is connected, but it's about as red as Leviticus is in the Old Testament. It's one of those texts where you just say, whew, let's pass on by and go to somewhere that's more easy to understand. Some people would say that the book of Hebrews, or they might suppose that the book of Hebrews is not really for them because it is so Jewish. And if it is so Jewish, then maybe it really doesn't have that much to say to me as a Gentile. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Romans chapter 11, Paul says that we were grafted in to the blessings that are the blessings of Israel. 
So how in the world a New Testament Christian can understand what their faith and their life is to be like, divorced from the Old Testament and what God was doing there, is just inconceivable. That's where our roots are. Oh boy, stick with me, Tom. It's, it's, it's just crucial to us. We need to understand the relationship between the new, new covenant and the old. The great issue in Acts and the New Testament epistles is the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Now, this is a wild-haired thought, and I probably should uh, should keep it to myself, but I'm going to try this on for size. We don't know to whom, to which city, or to whom the, the book of Hebrews was written. Some think it was written to the saints in Rome. But here's a kind of an interesting thought to try on, and that is... Suppose that the book of Romans, which I believe centers upon the whole Jew-Gentile issue, and that 9 through 11 is not parenthetical at all, it's the conclusion. Suppose that the issue of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles is approached from a Western point of view in Romans. A point of view we love, right? Logical. One, two, three, bang. One, two, three, you know, you get this argument lays out, yes! I mean, you can get your hands around it. You can go down the Roman road. You get on Hebrews and it's like that, what is Lombard Street in San Francisco? It's like, whoa! And it's a fast ride down. So there, there is, in Romans, there is an approach that is sort of Western. Suppose that Hebrews is the Eastern answer. And that what you're looking at now is the relationship between old and new, Jew and Gentile, from the Hebrew point of view. Could be. Maybe it is. All right. Much of the error that is that exists and is, is addressed in the New Testament has a Jewish flavor. Now, just think about that. Acts chapter 15, some Judaizers say, unless you're circumcised, you cannot be a believer, right? Yes, you believe in Jesus by, by faith, but unless you're circumcised and you keep the law, you're not really saved. 2 Corinthians 11 is another interesting text because Paul has been talking about those who are, who are leading off little factions and you see all this problem and you really don't know who they are in 1 Corinthians. And then you see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says they are actually messengers of Satan. They are spokesmen for Satan. And then in, in uh, verse 22, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Now, if I understand him correctly, what he's saying is that there is a Jewish caste to what they are doing. So error uh, often has that flavor in the New Testament. First Timothy 1, 6 and 7. Those who wish to be teachers of the law. He's left Timothy there to deal with them. Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 14, where he talks about not paying attention to Jewish myths. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 9. Revelation 3, uh, verse 9. The synagogue of Satan, those who say that they are Jews, but really are not. So it seems to me that what we have to say is that if we do not properly understand the relationship between the Old Testament and the New, we, we are susceptible to error, and in particular that which may have some Jewish cast to it. Oh, uh, we say to ourselves, well, that's really a Jewish book and those are Jewish problems. And I say to myself, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, 
There is no temptation comes our way, but such as is common to man. So what problem is it that those readers would face that somehow we don't face at all? Oh, I have to tell you, I love J. Sidlow Baxter, but I had to close his book on this one. Basically what he says is, it was a problem they faced then that we will never face again. Nice try. Nice try. But it doesn't sell. There are problems in the, in the Old and New Testament, and friends, we find variations of those all over the place today. It does apply to us. Uh, Hebrews deals with things like spiritual apathy. That's in uh, the book of Hebrews. Neglect of the word of God, neglect of fellowship. That's in Hebrews. Disobedience to the word. That's there. Denial of the faith. It's there. Those are things that every church, every Christian faces in some way or another. Here's one. This is probably one of the key ones. Hebrews is a hard book to interpret and apply. Amen to that, right? And just to, to tell you, you're not alone in that assessment. Uh, William Barclay once wrote, When we come to read the letter to the Hebrews, we come to read what is, for the person of today, the most difficult book in the whole New Testament. I agree. Spurgeon wrote this uh, when he was uh, describing himself in his early years. The young Charles Haddon Spurgeon found it difficult, Hebrews, found it difficult to understand. With typical humor, he recalled his teenage feelings about the letter. Quote, I have a very lively, or rather deadly, recollection of a certain series of discourses on the Hebrews, which made a deep impression on my mind of the most under, undesirable kind. I wished frequently that the Hebrews had kept the epistle to themselves, for it sadly bored a poor Gentile lad, even Spurgeon. So it is hard, and, and there are certain things that, that seem sort of uh, like clouds of mystery or, or areas of the unknown that may add to our level of difficulty. For example, the area of authorship. Uh, in his commentary, Ellingworth uh, deals with 13 proposed authors for the book of Hebrews. 13 including such people as Paul, Luke, Apollos, Barnabas, Priscilla, a feminist had to get somebody in there, and uh, Clement of Rome. So you, you've just got everybody's all over the map about authorship. And, and so you have to say, well, that's obviously something we don't know. Now let me talk about that for a minute. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, is just a really key verse. It's not the only one of its kind, but it says... The things that have been revealed are things that are for you to understand and to ponder. The things that have been concealed are not for you to know. Now I'm paraphrasing, but leave them alone. The things that God has purposed not to reveal are things you are not to know. And why is it that we have this innate curiosity within us that says, that is exactly where I'm going to spend my time. I'm going to figure out who the author of the book of Hebrews is. Well, spend away, folks. But you've got a lot of company and a lot of options. And the truth of it is, you'll never know. And you know what? God didn't want us to know. Now, let me press that just a little bit further. 
This this first came to me through a, a, a message that Dr. Johnson, by the way, he had taught the book of Hebrews 40 times uh, by the time he was teaching this at Believer's Chapel. But he mentioned it, and, and I've seen it with others, but it, it, it had not occurred to me that when the writer to the Hebrews talks about other portions of Scripture, you've seen the quote about how many times old te- other texts were read, Remember where it says, somewhere it says, you know, and, and you're thinking, oh man, I love that guy. He's got a bad memory just like me. And you're thinking, you know, the guy's slipping his cogs, you know, he, he doesn't know, or he's a little bit sloppy. There's only one time in all of those quotations, I think it's chapter 4, where he says that in the passage that relates to David, but every other time he avoids telling us who the author was. Now think about that. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, says, God who has spoken in various ways, at various times, has now spoken to us by Son. What's he telling us? The author, I believe, by not telling us who he is, and by not telling us who all these other characters are, is saying it is God who is speaking. Who do you care? What do you care? Whether it's Paul or Apollos or Barnabas, what do we care? The point of Hebrews is God is speaking in his word. And the fact that he leaves the authors out is just a way of saying, deal with it. I'm not going to tell you who wrote that text. Because God wrote it. It seems to me that makes sense. And so what are we getting all in a lather about this authorship thing rather than just to say, it's obvious God doesn't want us to know. And maybe there's something to be learned from that. We don't know about the recipients and their circumstances. Now we know some. We know that they had been believers for some time. We know that because in the end of chapter 5 and beginning of chapter 6, the author is saying, I really want to talk to you about Melchizedek. And frankly, by this point in time, you guys ought to be teachers. But you still got the baby bottle out. You still got the formula. We're still just nursing you along because you haven't grown like you should have. But the point is, over that period of time, you should have. When you come to uh, chapter 10, he goes back and he talks about those times, as we heard in our text this morning, he talks about those times when they had suffered persecution for their faith. They had suffered the seizure of their property and all of these things. So they had been through hard times in the past. These are not brand new baby Christians. These are old baby Christians. And so we know that. We know that there is a danger of drifting away by disregard, by neglect in studying God's Word, neglect in fellowshipping together with the saints. But there's a more active, aggressive danger, and that is one that is just actual unbelief and disobedience, and one that even hypothetically can lead to, to renouncing your faith. And I have to say to you folks, I personally have seen that happen. I've seen it happen within my family. I've seen it happen, my more distant family, I might add, and and I've seen it happen in this church. I've seen people who were here, who sang with us, who spoke, who prayed, and who later said, I don't believe any of that stuff. These are the things that Hebrews is saying to us 
you really need to watch out for. So I'm saying, we don't have to know who those recipients were. All we have to know is that they were men and women with like passions who face exactly the same kind of problems that we do. Maybe a little variation in them, but not really that much. The cities, the city of origin, the city of destination, we don't know. And you know what? It doesn't matter. It just makes it all the more universal. In fact, I think it helps us. Let me give you a classic case in point. When you come to the writings of Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians, and in particular certain elements like his dealing with the role of women, I've heard people say, I've heard evangelical Christians say, that's just Paul. <laughs> you can say what you want about the writer of the Hebrews, but you can't name him because you don't know who he is. But but you see what I'm saying? People lock in and they say, yeah, Paul, he's just he's just a, 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 an old fuddy-duddy. And, and yeah, what would you expect from him? We don't know who this author is. We've got to deal with what uh, he's trying to say to us. We don't know, but we don't need to know. The date of the writing, we don't know that either. We do not know <laughs> when it was written. The speculation is probably the second half of the first century. And the real question is whether it was written before the fall of Jerusalem or after. But again, it's really hypothetical, and we don't need to know. Those pesky warning texts. Isn't that really one of the reasons why people avoid Hebrews? Is it just says some things that are downright disturbing. And, and, and the text that I had read this morning is, is sort of a spectrum. I mean, you look at that first text, and it's talking about us drawing near and not forsaking the fellowship. Oh, that's so, oh, that feels so good. And, and I thought about stopping. I thought about stopping the reading at verse 25 and just not going to 26. But 26 is saying, hey, you know what? It's right dangerous to disregard God's word. It's there, folks. We got to come to terms with it. Um, and, and yet we feel it's just easier to somehow go somewhere else. But let me say something. I noticed this morning in John chapter 15, when Jesus is talking, it's the same thing. He talks about abiding in me and all the wonderful things. And then he says, what happens about the branch that doesn't abide? Oops. Sounds like Hebrews to me. It's there. You just got to come to terms with it. I don't know how I'm going to solve those problems. I'll tell you. That's part of my fear and trembling. But I got some weeks. <laughs> Maybe when I get close to them, I'll really stretch it out so I have more time. But the reality is there, there's an explanation. We need to come to terms with what the Scripture says. And we don't solve our problems by just going somewhere else. All right. Tracing, oh, controversy. Oh, might as well say that too. Uh, oh boy, everybody divides and some people are touchy. Uh, and so there's the possibility that within our bodies, somebody uh, may be uptight with me or I may be uh, tempted to be uptight with somebody else because we don't see it the same way. Well, welcome to the club. Join the commentators. They're all there. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't study this book. Tracing the argument. That's the hardest one. It is, it is, you know, I am a point A to point B. I mean, Romans is my book. I love the logic. It is a nice straight line. I said to Orv, by the way, as you would expect me to do, what do uh, people in the Middle East, how do they deal with the book of Hebrews? 
And he basically said, it's no problem to them. It's us, folks. It's us. It's not this book. It's us. Because of the way we think. And all of a sudden, we come to a writer who has a different point of view and a different style, and we're saying, oh, what was us? Well, other people around the world, they're saying, man, Romans is a mystery to me. But this Hebrews, I, I can get into that. Can you believe that? It's true. Tracing the argument. One of the things that Guthrie says is that you, it doesn't go from A to Z. He says, Hebrews does not develop in a neat outline from point A to point Z. Rather, the author switches back and forth between exposition and exhortation. That has been a very helpful insight to me. Is, is generally speaking, you know, you come to the book of Ephesians, three chapters of doctrine, right? Then you move to application. Well, if, 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 if Ephesians were written like Hebrews is written, you'd have chapter one, exposition. Chapter two, application. Chapter three, exposition. Chapter four, application. It's just the way it's done. And so we have to recognize that we've got a different style of writing and it's moving from exposition to application and the application will change from this point to this point. And so it's not a nice straight line and you will find things that are introduced at one section that get picked up later and are, are more fully played out. That's just the way it is. That's the way the author uh, deals with the matter. By the way, this, I think most of the, of the, of the students of scripture would acknowledge that the book of Hebrews is a sermon. And not only is it a sermon, it, it's the kind of sermon that would be given in the synagogue. Now, one of the, uh, the authors points out uh, that when you look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 22, the writer says, now I urge you, brothers and sisters, bear with my message of exhortation. Uh, for in fact, I've written to you briefly. When you look at Acts chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, you see Paul uh, coming to the synagogue, and it reads this way, Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 14. Moving on from Perga, they arrived at the city in Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent them a message saying, Brothers, if you have any message of exhortation for the people, speak it. So we need to understand this is the way in which, you know, we, we get the little synopsis in Acts of, of the way in which Paul would speak, but this is the style that would have been used for a Jewish audience uh, by a, a Jewish, knowledgeable Jewish speaker. Uh, and it seems to me it helps, at least it helps me to understand that. Now, here's, here's where Guthrie was really helpful to me, and maybe I hope it'll be helpful to you in terms of the labor that we need to go through, the effort we need to expend to study and understand the book. He gives this illustration of three friends. And by the way, Gail Humphreys is really going to love this. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But he talks about, he comes, seemingly he's from Tennessee. And he came to Southwestern Seminary in, in Fort Worth to do his, his, uh, his master's work in, in seminary. And, and so he says, he had a friend that came to seminary with him and, and his name was Danny. 
And, and he said because they came from the same part of the, of the country, they had very little difficulty in communication. He gives examples. Barbecue means shredded pork. Paris is a town in West Tennessee. And to carry somebody to church doesn't mean to pick them up and haul them. It means to give them a ride in your car. That's the way people in Tennessee speak. And, and so he's saying that for he and his friend Danny to be able to communicate, they don't have to go through a lot of explanation or whatever because they think the same way. They talk the same way. They use the same terms. It's easy. He said, then he came to Texas. And, and he realized that people here in Texas weren't quite exactly the same. And some of his friends, when they talked about barbecue, they were meaning beef brisket. Isn't that right? Shredded pork. What are you talking about? And Paris was a town in northeast Texas, not a place in Tennessee. And a tank was a small body of water with you went swimming or fishing or you fed the cows, watered the cows. But that's Texas talk. He said then when he was at seminary, some of his friends were international students. And he says, one in particular was a Korean fellow. And he says, for him, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name, but barbecue is this, whatever that was. Who knows what that stuff was? But it wasn't shredded pork and it wasn't beef brisket. But that's what he meant by barbecue. That was their way. And you ate things like fermented cabbage and, you know, beets and all that stuff. That was part of the freight. And because of the cultural and language differences, there had to be a whole lot of conversation that took place so you understood you were on the same page. You had to do a whole lot more talking and a lot more careful listening because you realized you come from two different worlds. He's saying that's the way Hebrews is. Hebrews is a Korean student, if you want to put it in those terms, and you've got to listen differently and quit thinking that barbecue is always this. Maybe it isn't. He gives another illustration, which I, I really enjoyed. He talks about his own home, and near his home there is a place called Fork, there's a, a, a little river called Forked Deer. It's about 30 feet wide. And he said, thankfully, that, that the, the state uh, put in a bridge. And he says, it took a certain amount of labor, it took a certain amount of materials and resources to build a bridge that crossed this 30-foot divide. And he's very thankful for that. He says, 50 miles away, uh, there is another river called the Mississippi. And uh, the bridge there is a mile long. And he's saying, to get from one side to the other, it takes a whole lot more materials. It takes a whole lot more effort because the distance is greater. And then he talks about going from Houston to uh, to, to uh, Florida, and they're going through Louisiana, and I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the Atchafalia Swamp. Thank you very much, Sam. I never, I'm not going to try and say it again. That swamp is 17 miles long. And it has alligators and snakes. And, and the point is, it takes a whole lot of effort to bridge that gap. But you see, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about Hebrews being here and you and I are being here. And, and it's, it's a wider gap than Romans, than some of the other books of the Bible. It's a wider gap. We don't fail to try and cross it because it's hard. We expend more effort. That's what it calls for us to do. It calls for us to labor to, to bridge that gap. So here's my conclusion. We avoid Hebrews because it's hard. 
And the first thing I would say is this. Do you think Hebrews wasn't hard for the first people who heard the message? Do you think those people who got this, the epistle to the Hebrews says, oh, this is a cakewalk. Get over it. They looked at that and their eyes rolled like ours did and said, whoa. And this is one sermon, folks. One sermon. Well, it is hard. It's hard because the content, the culture, the language, it's different. It requires effort. It did from them, the original readers. It certainly does for us who are farther distance from them. Now, here's my question. Hebrews is hard. Why? I think what I've been guilty of is I've been pointing my finger at Hebrews and maybe the author and saying, bad job, bad job. You know, as though it's the author's problem. It's the book's problem. And if the book can't get it together and do it better, then I'm just not going there. And it dawned on me as I was working on this message, I said, oh my goodness, the problem with Hebrews is me. Think about 1 Corinthians. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3? And in early chapter 3, Paul basically says, I can't talk to you like mature people. i got to talk to you like babies because that's what you are. Hebrews chapter 5. He starts talking about Melchizedek and he says, You know, I see that glassy look in your eyes. <laughs> You're looking at me all like this empty stare like you've never heard of Melchizedek before. I've got all kinds of stuff to say to you of substance you ought to be teachers, and here you are, babies, and you're not getting it. And what he's saying is, it isn't the book that's the problem, it's you. And the book shows us how shallow we are because these things make our eyes roll. Isn't that right? Now, how do you solve the problem? There, the editor of uh, Terry Muck, who's the editor of this uh, uh, commentary series, had an interesting old page and a half or two page introduction, and he says this. When we look at the church today and we look in our culture, we, we see one sick puppy, to, to be pretty candid. And, and so the question is, how do we fix it? How do we deal with Christians who are complacent, who are ignoring God's word and neglecting fellowship with one another and not serving as they ought to and not living the kind of life they do? And, and he says, he says it more nicely than I will, but, but, but basically he says, uh, we uh, we hire people like George Barna and we do sociological surveys. Or we go around and we ask people, what kind of a church would you like to attend? And then we modify our methods and we modify our method, message to make it easy for those people to now come our way. What does the writer to the Hebrews do? The writer to the Hebrews says, in effect, you guys are wimps. You guys are mushy in your faith and you're setting yourselves up so that when the hard times come, and they are coming, when those hard times come, you're easy bait to fall away because you have no roots. You have nowhere to stand. How do you solve that? He solves it by writing the most difficult book in the New Testament and he says to us, toughen up and study it. Now, that's a little different approach, don't you think? Than, than the classic way of let's dumb it down. Let's make it easier. Let's, let's just, you know, make it real simple for everybody. The writer of the Hebrews says, you've had that too long. 
Now, I'm giving you something that you're going to have to chew on. And when he tells us, don't neglect this word, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If God has spoken in that way and he has affirmed this is his word, then you'd better pay attention. So I'm saying to myself and to you, is the book of Hebrews difficult? Yes. Why? Oh, partly because it's a different time and a different culture, and partly because we're dull. And so we need this book. This is the solution the author gives to us. If you want to solve that dullness, if you want to strengthen those weak and wimpy hands, if you want a better and a higher view of Jesus and greater faith and greater works, read this. Is that not right? And that's what we're going to do by God's grace. Scared silly. This part was easy. Then we get to the text. That's really tough. But that's what God's called us to do. Father, we thank you for this book. We know as men through the ages have acknowledged it may be hard, but it's great. Help us to be diligent, faithful students. You have spoken in this book. You have spoken powerful words of encouragement, of warning, of instruction. Give us the grace, give us the desire to be students of this book, to know our Lord Jesus more intimately, to grow in our faith and our walk, to be able to stand in the days of difficulty. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.